something like 10 years ago now, uh, maybe a bit more, when I, I was a minister in Northampton, in one of my churches I had a, a monthly Bible study. And on one occasion, uh, uh, an elder of the church, someone who'd been in the fellowship their whole life, said they, they couldn't rationalize, they couldn't put together in their mind how they saw the God depicted in the Old Testament with what they knew of Jesus. And my response was, it wasn't what was written in the scriptures that they struggled with. It was how they read what was in the scriptures. It was there, but they just weren't quite seeing it. They weren't hearing the message because of how they always perceived it should be heard. In the context of all scripture is of God who loves the world and therefore we need to read with that in mind. We need, whenever we pick up a Bible, whether it's from the Gospels as we're reading today or from right back in Genesis or through a revelation, wherever we're reading, we have to read it with in mind, this is a God who loves us and loves the world. And we see that expression of love, even in the grisliest of battles, sometimes it's hard to see where the love is, but it is tucked away in there. It is in the clothes that are given to Adam and Eve as they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. It's in the saving of Noah's family and the flood and the things that happen there. It's in the life and the growing wealth of Jacob. You know, the one that deceives, the one that's a bit of a rotter, actually is the one that God's purposes have got to be worked through. We hear that God hears the cry of the Israelites in Egypt, and he doesn't leave them in the wilderness. He takes them on a longer journey, but he provides food and water for them on that journey. In the Old Testament, we discover Moses and David and Jonah and Joel are among those who proclaim the Lord to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and swift in love. And they do so because God, through all time, is love. Much of Jesus' teaching is because the people of the first century were likewise misreading and misapplying the old Hebrew scriptures. They were not hearing what God was saying to them. And so they were failing to live with love in the way that God wanted them to live with love. And this same failure continues into the early church. It's what many of the epistles are written about, about people failing to live with love. And it's true of the church today. 2,000 years later, we still get things wrong at times, maybe even frequently. 
We so often live listening more to the fallen way of society than living through the mercy and grace of God. But as Paul told the Corinthian church in his second letter to them, Christ came that we can be reconciled with the Father when we choose to live the way of the Son. When we choose that life of love, we experience more and more and come to live the life of God, which is love. Our passage today is Jesus explaining how we can use the path of reconciliation to correct certain broken relationships within the fellowship of the church. And it is one element of living with the love of God. And I bring it to you today, not because of any particular situation that we have here, but nor just because it's in the lectionary for today, but because it's important throughout our lives that we live with love and remember that we live in a way that rightly seeks reconciliation in a way that God has love. Now, crucial to our understanding of what this particular piece of teaching is about can be found in the first half of verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, and the word sins is to be understood in the context of sins against you. Sometimes that against you is written in the text. Sometimes it's in a footnote. But it's there. It's in that context of your brother or sister sinning against you. It's not about someone doing something to a third party, to your friend, to your neighbor. It's not about the actions of an unbeliever. It is your brother and sister in Christ. It's about somebody within the church doing something to somebody else who is in the church, doing an action that is not of God. Not just something you dislike, not just something you disapprove of. It is specifically sin. And this teaching is only about the damage that would come to that relationship when someone in the church has committed a sin against you. They've behaved in this ungodly manner. And the context of response is to be with God's love. That is seeking reconciliation. Now that doesn't mean getting things back to how things originally were. It doesn't mean to say that pain won't still be there. It doesn't mean to say you continue as before. But it's about there being a godly relationship there. It's not about confrontation or revenge, which might have been the ways that people would have thought about returning an issue, but to address initially, personally, without others getting engaged or even knowing about it, to address the situation 
There's no grumbling. There's no gossiping. If you think there's a sin against you, the first thing is to say to the person, I think you're doing wrong. I think you're doing wrong against me. Now, of course, where that thing is illegal, then in a modern context, we also report it to the police. And where it is a safeguarding matter, we also must follow other appropriate channels so that abuse is stopped. Too often in the past, churches have simply tried to to deal with stuff and say, oh, go and say sorry and make up and it'll be fine. That's wrong. Issues have to be addressed where they come up in such a manner. Where there is sin, it must not be simply turned away from. It needs addressing. Now then, if the one who is understood to have sinned doesn't listen to the individual approach, Jesus says takes witness to hear the allegation, to be there. And presumably they'll also hear the response. You know, have you actually been sinned against might be a question. But the aim is still seeking some form of reconciliation and peace. Listening is more than sounds just going into our view from in our head. It then has to get processed, doesn't it? The brain has to interpret it. So we consider what is spoken and also whether truth is heard. And at this stage, the conversation is still private. The ideal is that the matter is resolved and that the wider church does not even know the conversation took place because that risks introducing judgment and other breakdown of relationship. Whereas the whole purpose is restoration to godly love godly relationship. That's not helped by rumour, misunderstanding, gossip, which are all things that happen in every church. But are things that in themselves are against God's way. There are six different proverbs that speak of how wrong gossip is. And Paul includes it in his letters twice. It's wrong. But of course, it could be that the matter is not resolved. And Jesus is saying, you know, you've tried it this way. You've tried it that way. Then it is for the church to address. It becomes a matter for the church. The gathering of people, the group of believers. Because if there is someone who is sinning and not listening to the fact that they have sinned, then that's an issue for the whole church if it continues should they reject the approach they have to be treated as a pagan or a gentile as a tax collector now of course to 
somebody of the Jewish faith, we see how the Pharisees thought of tax collectors and other sinners and of Gentiles. They would ostracize them. We might say they would be sent to Coventry. Not that there's anything wrong with Coventry in and of itself. I mean, um, the IKEA store shut there in February 2020 because it didn't get any business. But that was because it was right in the city centre. I went there once. It was a nightmare to get to. But if we think of how Jesus treated these people he's speaking of, how did Jesus treat tax collectors? How did Jesus treat Gentiles? The book of Matthew is put down as being written. Historically, it was understood it was written by Matthew, the disciple. Matthew, the disciple, was a tax collector. Jesus invited a tax collector to be one of his disciples. It's a tax collector that's perhaps written the gospel we read today. He invites Zacchaeus to come down from the tree. Let's eat together. He eats with tax collectors. He shares time with them. And as for Gentiles, non-believers, in recent weeks we've read about him going to the region of Tyre and Sidon. We might also recall his interactions with a woman at a Samaritan well. The way we treat a pagan or a tax collector or whoever else we might see in such a role in society today is therefore to love them and continue to seek ways the kingdom may grow in their life, that they may be fed with the bread of life and refreshed with living water. However distant we have been from God, God continues to love us. And he expects us to have that same love. There are things that we reject in people's lives. We reject the sin. But we cannot reject the individual. And we must love them in the way that God loves. Like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Our Heavenly Father constantly waits, watching for our return. But more than that, he sent Jesus to come and bring us back to him, to reconcile us, to bring us home. And so we have to continue with that same relationship. Where there is someone distant, 
someone whose actions we reject, we continue to love and pray for the day that they will return. We are to be a search party, living and speaking his love each day. There may be hurt that continues. And if it's wrong, we have to address that in ways that are, might involve authorities. But we must also continue to love. Amen.